Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so we are in the letter to Pergamos. Yeah, right? There you go. Okay, the seven letters of seven churches. We've, we've been going through this uh, one letter a week. And if you remember, each of the letters has four levels of application to us today. There's a, an application literally to a local church at that time. There's an application to each of us personally. There's an application to all churches. And then the, the, in the order in which the letters are written by Jesus, they lay out and profile a history of the church in advance. So throughout, really from what Acts started as Acts 2 is the Apostle Church, the Apostolic Church, to Smyrna, the persecuted church, and today we're going to look at the um, Pergamos, which is the objectional marriage, the, the church that married the world. And so, as we go through these, it's kind of laying out a profile in advance of church history for 2,000 years. So let's just open up by reading the letter. It's in Revelation 2, starts in verse 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write... These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balaam to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So as thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name, written which no man knoweth, saving he that receives it. Okay, remember there are seven elements to each of the letters. There's the name of the church, the title of Jesus that he uses from chapter 1 in the letter, and then there's a commendation, an exhortation, um, a correction, something for them to fix. Then there's that closing phrase, he that hath an ear, let me hear the Spirit say it unto the churches. And then there's a promise to the overcomers. So there's these seven elements. And if you remember, at the end of this, we'll lay out that table that shows it all charted out. But in Ephesus, the first letter, it, it had both a commendation and a correction, something to get better at. In Smyrna last week, there was nothing to get better at. The persecuted church was doing great, hang in there. Well, today we're going to see quite a few things that the church at Pergamos needs to work on. So the first element is the name of the church, Pergamos. 
Uh, it's literally out of two root words in the Greek. Per literally means mixed or objectionable. It's where we get the word perverted. It's, a, it's an objectionable thing. Gamos literally means marriage. So this church was a perverted marriage, an objectionable marriage to the world. Okay, so if you remember the Epistolic Church, the letter to Ephesus, they forgot their first love. That was their big correction. So they're really strong on doctrine, but not on devotion. And then you get to the church in Smyrna, it was the persecuted church last week. And so as Satan's trying to wipe out the church through persecution, he's failing. And so instead he changes the tactic to marry the world, get the church to marry the world. And that's where we are right now. Okay, so the, the name of Jesus in the letter, and to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These say, things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Okay, so this is the name Jesus decides to use of himself in this letter. And the letter, the, the title of Jesus is important, so why would he use this? It's a church that's married the world. We're going to see in a minute it's where Satan's seat dwells, where Satan's seat is sitting literally. And so the name Jesus uses is the only offensive weapon we have in all of spiritual warfare. It's the, it's the word of God. So in Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you remember the kind of the seven elements of spiritual warfare, the armor of God, the only offensive weapon we have is the word of God. It's the word. And so Jesus is using this title of himself to, I'm going to come and literally attack where Satan is seated, where his seat is in this church and in this city in Pergamos. In Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we looked at this last time on how we are a triune being created in the image of God. Okay, if you remember from Thessalonians, love the Lord your God with all your soul, spirit, and body. And those, each of those words is very intentional. God is a trinity, a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we are created in His image. And so the Word of God divides that soul and spirit. The soul being your mind, will, and emotions. The spirit, the part of you that is eternal, that is made in the image of God. To have fellowship with him forever. So God's word. Okay, so Jesus uses the title of himself that is God's word in this letter. So God's word, he holds it above his very name. In Psalms 138.2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. So God takes his word very serious. And why? Because it's the covenant relationship. It's because of the word that we can come and have fellowship with the Father. It's because of the word. So he holds it above his very name. It's pure to strengthen your daily defense in Proverbs 30. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. His word is a treasure in Psalms 119. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. And in Proverbs 25 too, he conceals treasure Within his word. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. And so the Lord has literally placed treasure within his word 
And when you seek it out diligently, you dig out these treasures, and it just brings your relationship to Jesus. It brings it to a new level of life that you will not experience otherwise. Okay, it's all because of that. It's the only way to build your faith. So Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it's the substance of things hoped for. That is Jesus. He literally is the substance of all that we have hope in. And see, other things not seen. So why is it important? Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So you can't please the Lord unless you have faith. So then how do you go get it? Well, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so God is at his word. He keeps, he holds above his very name. It's the only way we have a relationship with them. And he is imploring you to dig into it and to study and to sit with the author himself. So God's word framed the very world which we live in, Hebrews 11.3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God's word was in the beginning, John 1.1. 1, 1. There's two major creation passages in the whole Bible, Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.1, 1, 1, and both linked to Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. His Word created everything. In John 1, 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians 1, 16, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him. And for him, and we're going to look at this a little bit later, but those, again, the thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, those are all ranks of angels in the Greek. And so literally, everything is created by him. God's word holds it all together in, first, in Colossians 1.17. He's before all things, and by him all things consist. And in the Greek, that, that word literally means held together. And we've mentioned this before, but... Uh, modern science and physics has found that it's literally sound waves that are holding every single atom in the universe together. So what they've detected through quantum physics literally is the voice of God. Because ten times in Genesis 1 it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. And he, he created it all, and he put it all back together in Genesis 1. And by him, it's all held together still today. So the commendation. Okay, the letter to Pergamos. Uh, Revelation 2, 13, the next verse, I know thy works. So again, this is the third letter in a row that Jesus is saying, I know what you're about. You know, I know what you're doing. I know what your church is after. I know where you're placing your heart's desire. I know where you're spending your time, your resources, your efforts. I know how you're reaching out to people. I know what you're doing. And Jesus says the same thing about us today, all of us. He knows what we are about. I know thy works. And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now this is, on the surface, you can kind of read over this, but if you stop and think, this is not where Satan's passing through. This is not where Satan is kind of coming in and out occasionally. This is where his seat is. A seat is a seat of comfort, right? It's where you prop your feet up. You have, you have a welcome place to sit and to dwell there. So this is a scathing condemnation to the church that, hey, 
I know what's going on where Satan's seat is literally dwelling. He's welcome here. And I don't like that, you know, is what Jesus is saying. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where in Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Again, he says it twice in this one verse, where Satan is. So the church was dwelling at the center of Satan's influence and strength at this time in Pergamus. He was comfortably there. The church and the city were under immense spiritual warfare. And we'll see this in a little bit, but Pergamus, it also literally means the city of the serpent in, the, in ancient times. Okay, so the false pagan worshiping people believed this to be the location where Zeus was born. Okay, this false idol that they would worship that all these pagans around in Turkey and it's modern day Turkey where this is. But in Asia Minor back then, we're looking to these false gods and worshiping them. And in fact, they built a gigantic altar here at Pergamos. Its foundation alone was 125 by 115 by 50. So it was massive where they had these gigantic statues of false idols that they would worship. So literally... It is where Satan's seat was, where he was trying to influence the church and lead people astray away from worshiping the true one living holy God and going after the false gods. But this church, so Jesus is giving them a, a, a praise. The church held fast to his name and did not deny the truth. That was a good thing. Um, and then we get to this guy named Antipas. You know, we don't know much about Antipas. He's not in the Bible anywhere else, doesn't really show up, but his name in the Greek is interesting. In the Greek, it means to withstand against all. And so it could be literally a man named Antipas was there who was a martyr. That's very likely. That's what Jesus is saying. But it's interesting that he's using him as an example because his name means to stand against all, to withstand all the enemy is pushing down on the church. So he refused to deny Jesus. He stood against all, and he was martyred, and he's chronicled here by Jesus himself. Okay, Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but again, here are these ranks of angels again, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Four ranks again. Okay, Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44, Jesus tells us that. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's the deceiver, Revelation 12, 2 Corinthians 11. He's a liar. Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies in John 8 again. He was a sinner from the beginning in 1 John 3. He has a vast evil kingdom that is against the Most High King in Matthew 25. And... The world currently lies in wickedness that he has set in motion in 1 John 5. Now, when you think about, you know, when did Satan fall? Okay, you read Genesis, you get to chapter 3, and there's Adam and Eve, but then there's Satan already against them. He's got something against them already, and you don't really know what's going on there. But when you go to Job, we know that the angels cheered when the earth was created. So they were created before Genesis 1.1. At some point, they fell. Okay, and Satan shows up just as an adversary from the beginning. Well, in Ezekiel 28, we know that Satan was the anointed cherub that covered God's throne. He was clothed in light. He, was, he likely led worship in heaven 
when you really read through Ezekiel 28, he was, uh, his timbers and his pipes, the music he praised God with, he likely led worship in heaven, which would make sense with the way that he's influenced music today that our culture just takes in. Um, and it blasphemes Jesus. It's everything against God's kingdom. So it makes sense that he is influencing that today. But at some point he fell. And so when was that? When you, when you really look into the creation event, he likely fell between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 because in Isaiah 45-18, God did not create the earth confused and without form. And so at some point he fell. In Jeremiah 4, there's a big judgment against Satan. And when you kind of put all of this together, it makes sense that God created the earth. The angels cheered. It was his throne. He likely had dominion over the earth when he rebelled against God from Isaiah 14. He had pride enter his heart. So he rebelled against the Lord, and the Lord cast a great judgment on the earth. And that's what the whole six days of what I like to call recreation is all about, is God putting that earth back together again. And so it, we'll, we'll dive into that more at some point, but that's kind of the background of, of where he started to fall. He's not omnipresent. He's confined and has locality. He's our adversary from 1 Timothy 5 and 1 Peter 5. He's an accuser of the brethren. This is one of, one of the greatest things Satan has influenced the church on today, is to be an accuser of the brethren. You know, it's amazing to me how many people stand up in churches all over the world and accuse someone else of something. Someone else that's teaching something or preaching something. And there's a difference between teaching God's word and sticking. If you, if you stick with teaching his word, all of that will work itself out because people will learn the truth. But they, a lot of times people take a tact of accusing other people. And that's, that's straight up a doctrine from Satan himself. He's the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, which is interesting because the last part of the judgments in Revelation we're going to look at are poured out on the air. And I think that's really intentional by, by Jesus himself, that he's literally climactically attacking where Satan is, has his power. He's the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience in Ephesians 2. He is the enemy that sows tares in the spreading of God's word. Remember in all the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13, the sower goes out and there's these ministers of Satan, the birds that come and try to take the seed away. Okay, and Jesus explains later, those are the ministers of Satan. And so throughout those parables, when you see that what the birds are doing, they are the ministers of Satan trying to attack the church to take away the word of God. And six other times in God's word, he simply is known as the wicked one. The wicked one. And so he he is. It's also important, just one other note, I didn't put this in the slides, but in Jude we learned that Michael disputed with Satan over the body of Moses. Okay. And there's a whole backstory as to why. But what you learn is that Michael said, did not bring a railing accusation against him. He said, The Lord rebuke you. Okay, because Jesus has authority over him. And it's by the authority you have with Jesus laying in you. That you can say, Jesus, you rebuke him. So if he is active in the lives or his, his minions are active in any of your family members' lives or children's lives, anything, you take the blood of Jesus and you rebuke him by the blood of Jesus and by the name of Jesus. And you let the Lord go forward and fight that battle and get him out of their life. So the angel um, 
So he and his minions are territorial in Daniel 10, Revelation 9, Revelation 16. We'll see that as we go through the book. But when you get to Daniel and you're in chapter 10, Daniel sets out a fast for 21 days. And it took him 21 days of fasting and praying before the angel could get a message to Daniel. In Daniel 10, 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and 20 days. But lo, Michael... One of the chief princes came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Okay, so you have this, this power behind the throne. Okay, the power, the prince of the power of Persia is fighting the angel from getting a message to Daniel. And so whatever this enemy was that's serving Satan in his kingdom, it was trying to withstand a good message from an angel trying to get to Daniel. And Daniel's going to warfare by fasting and praying. In Daniel 10, 20, it says, Then said he, speaking to angels, speaking to Daniel, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. And so he, at this time when he's telling Daniel this, Greece was this little bitty nation that wouldn't rise to power for another 150 years. But there's, there's this spiritual warfare, this power behind the scene going on, that the angel's just kind of giving us a peek behind the curtain of what's really going on, the real warfare that Daniel's fighting through. So this false spiritual system always migrated and followed the money, okay? It was founded in Babylon under Nimrod from the very beginning. It migrates to Pergamos, the, the church we were reading about. And then ultimately, throughout time, it migrated from Pergamos and settled in Rome. And so we'll, we'll look at that as we go throughout the letters. Okay, so the concern Jesus has in Revelation 2, 14 and 15. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balaam to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Okay, at the very end of this, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, if you remember back in Ephesus two weeks ago, they were holding the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus was telling them, get that out of your church. And Nico, Nicolaiti literally meant ruling over the people. It was trying to set the church over a rulership position over the people. And Jesus was saying, I don't like that. Get that out of your church. Get those deeds out. Well, they obviously did not listen because here, two churches later, they're holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So what the deeds became back then, as they progressed through the church, they became doctrine later on. And so there's a, there's a staunch warning there from Jesus about the Nicolaitans. But speaking of Balaam, okay, because that's how it has them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament, this will not make sense to you at all. You'll wonder who is Balaam, who's Balak, what's going on here? Why is Jesus using them as an example? And the doctrine of Balaam, well, we go back to Numbers and Deuteronomy. Balaam, he was a Gentile soothsayer from Joshua chapter 13. And after all of his shenanigans throughout the Old Testament, finally Joshua and the children of Israel wipe him out and kill him in Joshua 13. He's from Mesopotamia in Deuteronomy 23, by the Euphrates and from Aram. In Numbers 22 and 5 and Numbers 23, 7. 
So it's very likely Balaam may have been from Babylon. You know, we don't quite know what, where the, around, along the Euphrates he's from, but he was from somewhere in that area. You know, he's an Iraqi, is what we would call him today. He's an Iraqi. But he's coming forward. If you remember, the children of Israel are going throughout the wilderness, and they're destroying all of these kingdoms. And Balak is next. His kingdom is next. And Jesus is leading the charge and, and going through the wilderness, that pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. And he's wiping out these kingdoms one by one. And Balak sees what's going on and does not have any other way to fight against them except he thinks, hey, if I can go get someone that's supposedly a prophet in Balaam, then I, maybe he could curse the children of Israel and I would not lose my kingdom. That was his thought process, his logic. And so he's hired by Balak, the king of Moab, uh, to try to curse them. So if you remember the story, Balak comes to them. He's pleading with them, please come curse these, this people group. I don't know what to do. They're going to wipe out my kingdom. And three times Balaam goes to the Lord and the Lord says, no, you shall not go. Don't go. You cannot curse those people. Those are my people. And every time, the king tries to up the ante a little bit. Hey, if you go, I'll give you this. If you go, I'll make you second in the kingdom. If you go, I'll give you everything of the kingdom except my seat. You know, he keeps upping the ante. And finally, Balaam wanted to hire out his gift. That was ultimately the problem was a heart issue. And so finally, the third time, God says, okay, you may go. And it's that difference between the directive will of God and the permissive will of God. His directive was don't go. But because of his sovereignty and your sovereignty as his creation, he's going to allow you to do what your heart is wanting to do. And Balaam wanted to pursue this and get deeper rooted into the world as a result. And so he finally says, okay, you may go. But of course, it wasn't easy for him after he decided to go. In Numbers 22, he's rebuked by his donkey. Remember that donkey sees Jesus standing in front of him with his sword drawn and he stops and he crushes him into the wall. And Balaam starts you know, hitting his donkey real hard. And the donkey turns around and talks to him and rebukes him. It's amazing. And, and he's standing there. And then finally his eyes are opened. And he sees Jesus standing there with his sword drawn. And so he realizes, oh, that's why the donkey stopped walking. Um, he, he's refused to curse Israel, Numbers 23 to 24. But because he wanted to hire out his gift... He couldn't curse them, so instead he teaches Balak how to get them to stumble. And he says basically, hey, what you do is when they're camping around, get all of the women of the other cities surrounding them and get them to come in. And they'll co-mingle and destroy themselves with these pagan women. And that's exactly what happened. And so he taught Balak how to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And he's used throughout the New Testament as an example of what not to do. Here in Revelation 2.14, the doctrine of Balaam, it's marriage with the world. And that's the whole, the whole point of this letter, Pergamus, marrying the world, an objectionable marriage. In 2 Peter 2.15, it's the way of Balaam, loving the wages of unrighteousness. So the way, and then there's the error of Balaam in Jude 1.11, which is sacrificing eternal riches for temporal gain. And so there's the doctrine, the way, and the error of Balaam that Jesus uses three times. In the New Testament. So Revelation 2.16. The exhortation. This is what Jesus is pleading with them to do. Repent 
or else I will come into thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, so he's telling them, you've got to stop marrying the world and turn away from it and repent. Okay, and repenting is something you can only do after you're saved. You cannot repent beforehand. Okay, repenting is literally means to turn away from. And a lot of times in the Bible it speaks of God will repent. Remember the judgment on Nineveh that he declared over Nineveh. After all the people there cried out to the Lord, the Lord repented of what he was going to do. So obviously the Lord didn't need salvation. He was turning away from what he declared. Okay, salvation is Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, period. That's it. That is salvation. After salvation, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to then repent and turn away from the power of sin in your life, to turn away from it and turn toward God. So Jesus is speaking to believers here. Repent, or else I'm going to have to fight against you with the word of my mouth. Okay? So God, you do not want to be on the side of the Lord fighting with the word of his mouth against you. But if you stray away from the Lord long enough and you're not serving him and you're serving the world, he's going to correct you in some way because you're a legitimate child. And Hebrews builds that entire case of, a, legit, a legitimate child being corrected by Jesus. So the closing promise to the overcomer. Um, here again, we've got the closing statement. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So three times in a row, the closing phrase is before the promise to the overcomer. So you have the closing phrase. And now the promise of the overcomer is almost like a postscript. Okay, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receives it. So the hidden manna, what is this hidden manna about? In the Hebrew word, it literally means, what is it? And what's it? <laughs> That's what the children of Israel were saying all through the wilderness with this hidden manna that it was this bread from heaven that would show up on the dew in the morning and you have to go out and collect it and, they, and that's what they called it. What is it? What's it? And it's that hidden manna. And if you remember in Exodus 16, Jesus declared, okay, you go collect it for six days, but the seventh day you don't collect it. You collect twice as much the sixth day to sustain you the seventh. And it was implored for everyone to go get it. Everyone had to go get it. You couldn't go collect it for your spouse. You couldn't go collect it for your children. You couldn't go collect it for your friend. You all had to go out and get it on your own accord. And that's exactly what it's like in studying the word of God. You have to go get it on your own. And the whole model is, is your relationship with Jesus in opening the word of God and studying the word yourself. It's described poetically as corn and bread from heaven in Psalm 78 and 105. And when you actually go back in the Hebrew and you look at the volume they were required to gather every day, it's enough volume that you would not walk around and bend over all day. It would eventually drive you to your knees to gather it. And so that's exactly what in studying the word of God should do. It should drive you to your knees to gather the word of Jesus into your very being every single day. That's exactly what it, the model is. 
And of course, it all points to Jesus from John 6, right? The entire Gospel of John is built around seven I am statements from Jesus. I am the bread of life. And that, for that name, I am, actually first shows up at the burning bush. If you remember, the voice that spoke to Moses said, I am. Tell him, I am sent you. And it's I am. And then Jesus, later on in John, declares to be the voice from the burning bush when he tells the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. That's why they picked up stones to kill him, because he was declaring to be that voice from the burning bush. But it's interesting that a lot of people in the Bible receive a new name. You know, you've got the two most famous ones, right, are Sarai and Abram. And all, if you look at the Hebrew, what they did, all God did when he changed their name was he added a he in the middle of their name, the Hebrew letter, the he. So Sarai became Serha, and Abram became Abraham. Okay, and that he in the Hebrew is literally the spirit of God. It's the pneuma, it's the breath of God pouring into them. That's all he did was he added the spirit to them and changed their name. And you have, of course, Saul became Paul. Uh, you've got Peter, all of those things. God changes people's name throughout the entire Bible. And you, as an overcomer from 1 John 5, remember the overcomer is him who believes on Jesus. So you, if you believe on Jesus, you are an overcomer. And you have the opportunity to have a gift from Jesus, this white stone with a new name on it. Okay, what about Pergamus from just a historical perspective? It was located 48 miles north of Smyrna. So if you remember, we had Ephesus, the major political center, Smyrna, the major commercial center, and then Pergamus was the major religious center. Okay, as we're walking around that, the road we're traveling right now followed that old Roman mail route in modern day Turkey. And so you had the major political, commercial, and religious centers of their day is what we've gone through so far. A personal application, Ephesus was neglecting priorities. Remember, Jesus wants devotion, not doctrine. They forgot their first love. Smyrna was withstanding satanic opposition because of the, they were the persecuted church. Pergamus is avoiding spiritual compromise and marrying the world. That's what Jesus is imploring us not to do. Don't have an objectionable marriage. He's the bridegroom. We are to be the unashamed bride, not cheating on that covenant with the world. So then the application to all churches, Ephesus was prioritizing devotion, not just doctrine. Smyrna was enduring persecution, and Pergamus was to purify your ambassadorship. And if you remember the third commandment, we talk about this a lot, but the third commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, taking his name, he's telling you, don't take it and squander it. It's not about your language or vocabulary. It's not about cussing. Don't take his name and then bury it and do nothing with it. Don't take it in vain. That's the implication of that commandment. Go ahead, Ron. So, Pergamus was known as the city of the serpent. Uh, the caduceus was the official emblem of the city. Now, the caduceus emerged originally from the brazen serpent of Moses in the wilderness in Numbers 21. If you remember Numbers 21.5, the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. Okay, so the very gift that's the promise to the overcomer in this church is the gift that the children of Israel 
really hated. They were loathing this gift from the Lord. And so they loathe what God's reward is for this church by denying his name. And you can kind of see in the, in the picture uh, that pillar with that snake around it. It's just an ancient sighting from Pergamos. But they have these things all over the city. Okay, they were, it's literally against the city of the serpent. So pessimistic murmuring and God's divine provision is really what led to the Numbers 21 event. From verse 6, the, the children of Israel, they were murmuring, they were pessimistic, they were hating this provision from the Lord. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of, the, of Israel died. In verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee, pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And so the Lord said to Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And so God has this strange remedy for fixing the issue of the people, which was take a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, Put it very high up, and anyone that looks to it will be saved. That's the remedy. And when you first read that in Numbers, man, it sounds like a weird remedy for a sin, murmuring, pessimistic issue. And it's really not explained anywhere else in the Bible until you get to Jesus in John 3. But in Numbers 21.9, Moses made that serpent of brass. He put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And you finally get throughout the entire Bible to Jesus in John 3 in his discourse with Nicodemus, and he explains why that was the remedy. And he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, notice the salvation there, the unconditional salvation. All you do is believe. That's it. All you do is believe. He didn't say whoever believes and such and such. He didn't say whoever believes and gets baptized and does all these good works and all these things. No, you believe and you are saved. But Jesus explains this issue and it's a type of Christ in the Old Testament in Numbers 21. Because the serpent represents sin. It's established in Eden in Genesis 3. Brass is always the metal that can withstand judgment. In the Bible. Remember, there's the brazen altar, the, the brass, the brazen altar in the wilderness wanderings. So it always speaks of the metal that can withstand fire or divine judgment. It's the brazen altar in Exodus 27, 2. The brazen serpent is a type of Christ who was, quote, made sin for us. And so there's this remedy. And of course, it leads to the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he met our need to give us his son. You know, that's, it leads, that whole event leads to the most famous verse in the whole Bible. But it's interesting, it had it become a false idol still being worshipped 750 years later. In 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah had to destroy the brazen serpent. It was still being worshipped. Okay, they were, the people took it as a false idol when really it is to foreshadow a type of Jesus as our ultimate healing. And at the end, uh, Hezekiah says he called it uh, a thing of brass, a piece of brass, and he shattered it and got rid of it. 
But it's interesting that the symbol is still used and worshipped millennia later. Okay, here in Pergamos, it was the city of the serpent. Uh, the Greeks ad actually adopted as the god of healing and call it Escalapius. Um, so he, the fake he, could supposedly heal all the sick and raise the dead to life. And later on, it kind of morphed into two serpents on a pole, became the god Hermes, which was the god of trade and commerce. Okay, so there's only one who can heal and raise the dead, and his name's Jesus. And that's it. Everything else is a false, lying, fake counterfeit. And it's interesting how this symbol is used all over the world today for healing. This brazen serpent on a pole. And so, and Dan's not here, but Dan went to uh, the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine, so I, I threw that one in there just for him. But... <laughs> It's on your insurance card, it's on ambulances, it's on everything, right? This brazen serpent on a pole. That it, It's just interesting how that's so ingrained in our culture as a god of healing. Now, the ones that really mess it up are the doctors that put two serpents on a pole because it's the god of commerce. You know, not healing, so they're just wanting trade, which is kind of interesting. But the World Health Organization, the Medical Corps, they all use this symbol. So when you go through the history of Rome, you get to a guy named Constantine. In 312 AD, he sought to take supreme power in the empire. And it's interesting, his father, what he noticed was his father prospered when he had prayed to the God of the Christians. And so Constantine wanted to somehow tap, tap into that blessing. And so Constantine was intrigued. He defeated his rivals and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity. So he established freedom of religion, ceased the gladiator fights, he abolished crucifixion as a form of execution. He repealed the persecution edicts of Diocletian. Diocletian was the one that banished John to Patmos, where Jesus met him to write the book of Revelation. And he eventually assumed headship of the church. And it was at that point that the, the marriage was consummated, the marriage between the church and the world. They came together, and that's what Pergamus was all about, this time of when the church married the world. Okay, heathenism was Christianized after this. Pagan temples became Christian churches instead of being torn down like, like Jesus declared. Remember, all through the Bible, he tells them, tear down the high places, get rid of them, burn them to the ground. But they were converted instead to try to be used for Christian purposes. Pagan priests looked into the offices within the church. And overall, the change was mostly in name alone. And ultimately, what the enemy could not achieve by persecuting the church at Smyrna, he achieved through marrying the church with a false marriage. Okay, so if you do not know Jesus and want to be a member of the true bride, it's simple. The true bride of Christ. Again, Romans 10.9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead... Thou shalt be saved. So you can escape eternal separation from the one who knew you before he laid the foundations of the very earth itself. When you read in Psalms, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before you were ever even formed in a womb, knitly put together, fearfully and wonderfully made by the Creator Himself who spoke the universe into existence. And all through the Bible, 
God says once someone finally rejects him, that final line has been crossed, they will never receive him. He says, I must blot their name out of the Lamb's Book of Life. I have to blot it out. I mean, he made a way. He paved a way. He had you in mind. He wrote this name long, long, long before he ever laid the foundations of the earth and hung it on nothing, according to Job. Your name was written there. And yet, all he's pleading with, he, he spends your entire life pleading with you to just accept his gift so that you can become a member of the Bride of Christ. He wants to welcome you home forever. And you have a new name waiting for you and a spot at the table for what one day will be the greatest marriage supper ever, ever pulled together. In Revelation 19, we're going to see the marriage supper of the Lamb is set. When Jesus, before he left, he stopped at that fourth Passover cup. And he declared, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until we be gathered together. So there's a cup that Jesus is waiting to take a sip of, waiting to sit and dine with us at his table forever. So if you don't know Jesus and you're watching on live stream or you're in this room, there's a link on the live stream you can click to request a prayer or reach out to one of us in this church. Um, if you don't know the Lord and you're here in person, please come find us afterwards. Your eternal security can be taken care of right now in this place. You can leave here knowing without a, without a doubt where you are going to spend eternity forever with the Lord and be a member of one of these seven churches, the, the complete bride of Christ. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Yes, Chad, we have a question from the audience. Can I, can I, okay, so you, you, you would say Satan is a great counterfeit. Mm -hmm. Of everything God tries to do, he's a counterfeit of that. The one thing that I can't understand is even the pole with the serpent on it was is being counterfeited today. Yet the cross that was crucified Christ, that's the one symbol I can't see where the, Satan even uses. He can't use it. What? What? Is, or am I wrong? Well, you, you do see in churches a lot of an emblem of the cross with Jesus hanging on it. You know, he's not there anymore. He's not there. And, and it's... When you read Hebrews and people people try to twist this verse some, but they talk about crucifying Jesus again to the flesh. So crucifying him again, that's how Satan does it, is to make you think that if you mess up, you can lose your salvation and you need to get saved again, thus you have to crucify him again. Okay, so it's that it's that deceit, the roundabout deceit of planting doubt in eternal security. Does that make sense? Sure. So he's he's trying to twist that into, and again, it's what we talked about in, in Bible study on Friday, right? He tries to commingle and mix the loss of inheritance with the loss of salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your standing in the kingdom in in heaven forever. You can lose an inheritance. We're gonna look at that in chapter three coming up, but you can't lose your salvation. That's how he tries to twist that whole issue. So with that, we will close in prayer. Uh, we're going to lift up Harper again. Uh, praise God. Randy and I were driving to church. We got the, the message from Nikki that she was in a, in a bad car accident. I don't even know why. It was totally Jesus. We went a different route to church this morning. We happened to pass the intersection. Lindsay was there waiting, praying over her. Uh, we got to meet her parents and pray with them. And Randy and Lindsay were just standing on the corner praying over her. And we were praying that... Lord, that you would just put 
Harper back together because she couldn't feel something when the wreck happened. And literally at that moment, you could see Jesus putting her back together as she stood and walked out of that car. And it was amazing, the Lord's hand on her in that moment. So we'll keep praying for her healing. Um, Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for this time together. Thank you again for the letter to Pergamos. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege to gather together and to worship you and you alone and to read your word and to study the depth of your word without the threat of persecution. God, it is something that we do not take for granted. God, as most of the body of Christ in most of the last 2,000 years has had to endure persecution. And Lord, we know that one day that privilege will not exist. And Lord, it's just a matter of how much do you let us see as your bride of Christ before you take us out of here. And Lord, we have a very special member of our church in Harper who has been, who has raised her hand and walked in here to serve in the children's ministry, to serve in a great capacity when we had immense need in the children's ministry. She stepped in at the perfect moment. And Lord, we just pray that the, the spirit of the living God that lives and dwells in all of us that are in you, Lord, is the same spirit that raised your son from the dead. And that spirit can walk into that, that hospital room and lay your hands on Harper and continue to mend her wounds and put her back together and let her be a living testimony. Let her be a living, walking, breathing testimony of the immense power of your healing spirit. And that, Father, I just pray that you would put her back together again, heal those wounds and those cuts on her face. Let her not be numb. Let her not be shaken. But let her realize that just at that very second on impact that you thrust your sword into the ground and you deflected it just as much as necessary to make her walk again. And you put her back together. You let her raise up and walk out of that accident. And Lord, we just pray that there would be nothing broken, nothing missing. And that, Lord, she would be healed and new again. And that she would be glorifying you all the days of her life for saving her in that moment. Lord, thank you again for this body, this fellowship, this congregation. We love what you're doing here at New City Church. And we just give it all back to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.